God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Question this morning. When you were a child, did you ever do something you weren't supposed to do? That's what I thought, but I'm glad we're all willing to admit it. I mean, we all do. We all did. Hopefully we're not doing it so much anymore. Did you ever have that feeling that suddenly your parents appear in the room and they ask you if you did it? What was your response? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't do it. There was a one-armed man. He came through, I promise. Right? Now, was it obvious to your parents you did it? Yes. We've all seen children with icing on their faces deny it was them that stuck their finger in the, in the icing on the cake, right? We've all, we've all seen children, you walk in their room and it's full of cookie crumbs. What happened to the chocolate chip cookies? No idea, right? Hold on to that feeling just for a few minutes. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Now, it's been 23 to 24 years since our reading last week, our reading where God called Abraham and gave him that first promise. 23, maybe 24 years. That's a long time. That was way back in chapter 12. And God has to remind Abraham and Sarah about the, and give other details about the promise in chapters 13, 15, and 17. Every few years during that time, God has to stop and remind and explain a little bit more to Abraham what he was going to do. And oftentimes, these explanations from God have to come because Abraham knows the promises out there, and he doesn't want to wait anymore. He tries to find other ways to fulfill the promise. And God occasionally has to stop him and say, No, Abraham, I meant what I said. Now here, Abraham sees visitors come. And he does what he's supposed to do. He runs out and he shows them hospitality. He asks them to join him in resting and having a meal with Abraham and his family. The bowing, the pleasantries, the offer of drink and food is what you were supposed to do back then when, when a visitor came. There were no holiday inns. There wasn't a, a red roof inn. No one was leaving the light on for you. When you were traveling around as Abraham did, you saw somebody coming who needed a place to stay. You went out and offered it. And Abraham was generous to these visitors. Why is all that stuff about how much food Abraham and what kinds? Because Abraham's going above and beyond what was required to him. More bread than he was expected to give. Meat wasn't required at all. And in the midst of this generous meal, the guests, who were not exactly what they seem, asked him a question. They asked him, Abraham, where is your wife Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Now, this is not the first time that God and his representatives have started off a conversation by asking a question that they knew the answer to. The first time we see God doing this, the Bible mentions way back in Genesis. The one day God appeared in the Garden of Eden, like he always did. And who wasn't waiting for him? Adam and Eve. They weren't in their normal spot. He couldn't see them or find them. Why? Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one thing that he told them not to do. And now they were hiding. Do you think God didn't know where Adam and Eve were hiding yet? Of course not. God knew where they were. 
but he calls out anyway, Adam, Adam, where are you? To start a conversation that Adam didn't want to have. Here, the visitors start by asking a question about Sarah so they can start a conversation about the promise that God gave. And one of them said, I'll surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the entrance behind them. Now the guests were telling Abraham, and by extension Sarah, who's back in the background listening, the time had come that within a year a child would be born. Now 23, 24 years ago, Sarah was 65 when they left Haran. It's been more than two decades. The Bible was very clear. She was no longer able, able to have children. That's why she laughed to herself, I think. Having that little conversation about why would, why would God wait till now to give me that joy I want. And then one of the visitors is revealed to be the Lord, and he asks, why did Sarah laugh and say these things? Again, he knew the answer. And then he asks Abraham another question. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now Sarah had heard these, this, his question. He, she was, I don't know if she was embarrassed or afraid. Hearing God promise the impossible, not knowing it was God who promised it. All she could do was do what we all did when we were caught right-handed. I've got no idea who did it, Mom. Dad, it was the one-armed man, I promise. Killed Dr. Kimball's wife, and then boom, he came in here and stole those cookies. Most of us have been asked if we've done something and denied it, because we've been afraid of the consequences. But here, the Lord affirmed that he would return in a year, and there would be a child. And then we skip ahead from chapter 18 to chapter 21. A year has gone by, and we read, The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. God is faithful. In this case, the faithfulness was in Sarah at her age, conceiving a son. And Isaac was born. And Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. God has a sense of humor, and Abraham and Sarah's faith was rewarded. Our psalmist writes, I love the Lord because he's heard the voice of my supplication, because he's inclined his ear to me whenever I called upon him. God hears us when we cry out to him. The psalmist here has had his prayers answered, and in gratitude they want to do something. Now they know the same thing that we know. God's love is a free gift. Abraham and Sarah didn't deserve God's love, but they were chosen. We don't owe God in a transactional sense anything for God's love and forgiveness, but we should be thankful and not spoiled for the gifts we receive. That's the way the psalmist is. He says they're going to do what they would be doing anyway. They'll come and give a gift of thanksgiving, and fulfill their vows to the Lord. And they're not going to do it quietly. He ends that psalm by saying, In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, oh hallelujah, he's going to go and celebrate what God's done. The same way Sarah celebrated by giving the name Isaac, so that people would know about the laughter. Therefore, since we're justified by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, like Abraham and like the psalmist, we've got much to be thankful for, too. Paul's been writing about us being justified by faith. Last week, he talked about Abraham being justified by faith well before there was a law, and that it was faith 
in God and in Jesus Christ that justified the Christian. And now he writes saying that that same faith brings justification, also brings us peace with God and grace and the hope that we'll all share in the glory of God, that we're all part of God's family, heirs with God, joint heirs with Christ, and that the suffering that we endure as we live in this broken world, it isn't easy, but in the end it helps to produce in us the hope we have in God. Now why in the midst of everything in this life can we develop hope? Because God's love for us was proved. People, he, Paul says, won't die for a righteous person they don't know. Some will die for good friends and family members. We know this. But God's love for us was sent out and was so strong that he sent Jesus to die for us while we were still unlovable, mired by the effects of sin in our broken world. And looking out in that broken world, in our gospel, Jesus said this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now it's said that Jesus has been going around and preaching the good news of God's kingdom. He's already preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's already explained to people how they should be living in the new kingdom, right? The meek will inherit the earth. When we looked out at the crowds, all he could do was love them. All he could do was see that they were harassed and helpless. Sheep without a shepherd. Many of us I know have felt like that before. Harassed and helpless? Oh yeah, there are days. And then he says one of those sayings of Jesus that I've heard people use, even though they don't even know it was Jesus who said it. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field. He calls the twelve together and empowers them to go out and join him into the harvest field. This time he gives them a very narrow objective. Go out and preach to God's people who have wandered away and tell them the kingdom of God is here. Heal them, deliver them, take care of the sheep. Don't worry about your possessions. Don't carry a lot of things with you. Don't overthink it. Then he says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Now notice what he explains. The worthiness is not based on economic status. You're not going to go necessarily find the the man with, or woman with the most money in town and stay there. It's based on their hospitality, of inviting the gospel and those preaching it into their homes and in their lives. Just like Abraham invited his guests in without knowing who they were, Jesus was saying that those who show hospitality were going to be blessed, and those who did not would not receive the good news. He tells them, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. Sheep among the wolves. If you see a lone sheep out in the mountainside surrounded by wolves, what do you think is going to happen? Sheep doesn't have much of a chance, does it? It doesn't say a ram. It doesn't say anything like that. It just says a sheep. It didn't say to go out as wolves among wolves or sheepdogs among wolves, but sheep. He said to use the wisdom given by the Holy Spirit, were to be as harmless of a, as a dove, or only weapon the word of God. Our job is to proclaim the good news. And then Jesus said to them, if they arrest you, don't worry about what you're going to say. Let the Spirit speak through you. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Notice that the disciples went out and preached. And the 
Jesus went to those same cities later, preaching. It wasn't the apostles who would change the people's life. It was Jesus. In Abraham's life, it was faith, his faith that God honored. It was God who changed his life. And like all of us, it was not always easy. Sometimes we get impatient and try to hurry things along that we shouldn't hurry along. But God is loving and just and faithful to forgive us, even when we lack what he wants us to do. Abraham continued to doing what was right, in this case being hospitable. Centuries after Abraham, God tells his people in the law about strangers. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Jesus, of course, said, in everything you do to others, as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. In Hebrews, thinking of Abraham, amongst others, said, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. In a few minutes, at the end of communion, we'll all pray together for God to send us out to do the work that he's given us to do. God calls us to have faith and trust in what he said he would do, like Abraham had, like Paul had, like all of us. And our job is to share the love of Jesus. God's not called everyone to preach, but he does call all of us to share the love of Christ with those around us, to be hospitable, and to follow the Spirit in the work that he's given us to do. Amen.